The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Ned Buskirk. Ned's the creator and host of You're Going to Die, a movement to bring people creatively into the conversation of death and dying, while helping to inspire and empower them to unabashedly confront loss and mortality. The first live event was held on March 6, 2009, as a simple poetry night held in the golden belly of a San Francisco apartment. That's an evocative phrase. After that first occurrence, it quickly spilled into the community spaces of the city, filling local cafes and dark bars with the words and songs of its people. Now the live event series, You're Going to Die, Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes, with its current form and home as a half-open mic half-curated event held every month in San Francisco's Mission District has given way to a larger manifestation of its title, one that encompasses more than simply open mics and live shows. It's now an online international community creatively engaging with our shared mortality and all its inevitabilities. Welcome, Ned. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you. I... I, uh, I'm lucky to have attended one of your events recently, which isn't always possible for me since I have guests all over the globe. Um, it was a curated event you did with Claudia Beechen and her beautiful art. She's going to be on the show uh, May 25th, by the way. Um, her art, just for the listeners, is um, gorgeous um, drawn portraits of people that she interviewed who were... Uh, in hospice at the end of their lives, and she ran the taped interviews with with the image on the screen. It was very powerful. Yeah. Um, I remember f- first meeting her. She came to a, a You're Going to Die at uh, the space that was originally held in called Biracocha um, in the heart of the mission, and it's that place is closed now, and I'm in a new space. But she found the show when, when the show was there, and she was in the meat of her project here. You know, she's from London and, and so she'd come over here to do two or three years of that project and a lot of other stuff, of course. And in the middle of all that, she showed up to one of my nights and I remember her coming up to me after the show and just like, you know, wide eyed and, couldn't believe what she just gone through and just said, I cannot believe what I just went through. 
And I cannot believe I'm only just finding you and this movement. And we, it's one of those moments I feel like that I have a lot with this show and this movement is these sudden knowings of people that mm-hmm. are like-minded, but also, you know, I, I regularly talk about artists that come to my show and the way I describe them months and years later when they come and perform to the audiences that get to see them after I've known them for so long is I just want to welcome this person to the stage. The first time I saw him, I knew I was going to be barbecuing with them, you know, uh, eventually, you know, and that that's uh. the first thing before you get to hear the music and the first thing before you get to see the work. And so pretty soon after that, we met and she showed me her project and it was so obvious to me very clearly in that first meeting, the whole show kind of like fell into place. I just got how the videos worked. I got how the, the audio needed to be kind of set up and, and, uh, um, and what I wanted to happen in between all of what she had to share too, it just kind of all came, came together. It was, it was a great meeting and, and the, what's happened in the wake of it has been pretty wonderful. And would you say that, um, that's, uh, obviously that was a larger event, or at least I'm assuming it was a larger event than usual, um, being curated and, um, being more, uh, not an open mic situation, but a planned um, how many people were there? A lot. I know that. Yeah. It, it, you know, I've done a lot of You're Going to Die present shows before, but they've usually been in the spaces that I do the regular show, which often are pretty intimate. Um, getting 100 people into a space that I have been doing the show in, it would be like a real stretch, um, more like 60, 70. Um, and this was about 240, maybe, 230, 240. Um, yeah, the biggest show I've ever done for You're Going to Die it was really special because it was such an important show for me. You know, like having this occurrence was unique and uh, a new version than anything I'd ever done before. And then to have an audience there to kind of hold the space for that too, uh, a big audience, the biggest audience I've ever had was really, really special. And uh, and I think the audience, the audience's participation that night was half the show, you know, um, I really do. Well, one thing I noticed, and I'm using this as a way to talk about your shows in general, even though I haven't been there, is that um, I would say I was one of the older people in that room. Um, I'm 62. I'm not that old, but, <laughs> you know. I can't believe uh, that. <laughs> but um, generally, I, I found it to be a youthful audience. Mm. Um Compared with other audiences for uh, subjects of death and dying, I guess yeah. I would say. Yeah. And, and that really stood out to me and, and actually made me so happy. Mm. Um, just the idea that people, you know, what, 40, 45 and under mm-hmm. want to talk about this subject. Um, some, some people in that age group, of course, as I did, have faced death and dying experiences already, mm. but most haven't. Yeah. And I think uh, the idea that people would want to engage in thinking about it when it hasn't happened to them mm-hmm. is really um, powerful to me. Yeah, that's, pretty, uh, that's a pretty nice uh, acknowledgement, and I take it as that of the show. Um, and I think you're not the only one that experienced that, even specifically at this particular show. Um, I think part of a couple reasons why that happens is because 
uh, I started doing the show in 2009. Um, I was uh, just 30. Um, and the kind of show I was doing was a show that really was born out of a, my master's program at San Francisco State. So like the very original version was, all right, students and young community in the city, let's do this thing and let's get up there and let's be creative. And that's really what it was in the beginning was just a space to share. And so I think that has a, a lot to do with it. And then I think, you know, for the show you saw, I, I spoke a lot less than I usually do. Um, but part of the, the monthly show, I'm the host and, you know, I could probably, I, I probably could chill out a little bit and not talk as much as I do during, during the monthly shows, but I am an element as an MC and my sharing into the show has always been someone that is younger, who has experienced great loss, uh, at an even younger age. And so I think I hold the space in from that unique perspective and it might draw people to it uh, maybe in a different way than someone who's 75 and their whole life is really um, coming to a point where loss is such a great part of the conversation, you know, um, and a greater and greater part as we get older. And so I, I think that has something to do with it. I think that's why you had that experience. And I think that's why other people see that too. Um, and then I think that, and I'm not saying that 75-year-old people can't be very funny and entertaining around a somber conversation, but it does have that edge to it. I mean, it's called you're going to die. It's almost harder to go up to someone who's 75 and say that to them and not have them be pretty, pretty bummed at the present possibility of that as it is to go up to a 25-year-old and say you're going to die and have them say, oh, wow. Um, that feels far off, but <laughs> well, that's tripping me out. I'm down. Let's talk. I got you. But also, I, you know, obviously, since I'm 62, I know a lot of people in the upper ranges mm -hmm. <laughs> as well as younger people. And most of the people in the upper range that I'd say that's, that to would say, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole different experience. But I think you're talking about how we bring humor into subjects of death, which you know, having lived with a dying person for um, 10 years, I'm telling you, by the end, everything was funny. Mm, yeah. I, I know you know, you it was a comic experience, but it's hard to find places where that's normalized in, mm. in the outside community. Yeah. I mean, our I, friends just thought, you know, okay, they're weird, you know, but I don't think... <laughs> yeah. You both laughing. Yes. We're Everybody's laughing. like, what is going you know, on? Yeah. They're so relaxed. What the heck? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think there is something about uh, if you live next to death for a long time, if you really contemplate it, if you engage with it, it does get funny after a while. It's a comic cosmic joke, you know, yeah. that yeah. that we're all going to do that. And we're busy not talking about it. It's very mm. funny, actually. Don't you think? Yeah. This this like most potent truth, you know, maybe more than uh, everything other than that you are alive and were born um, is this thing that we're all taboo around. Um, I, and I think there's something to be said for that humor that you're pointing at. Uh, I, I'm kind of really into to David White uh, right now, the poet. Um, uh -huh. And I just listened to him on an uh, episode of On Being. And he was, he was answering a question about the host's 
experience of him and, and thinking of him as someone who carries like a great sadness around. And he actually compared what his, what his, what he's putting out his energy, I guess, like expression or manifestation of living is something more comparable to an elegy, which has both these notes, right, of honoring, like joyfully someone, maybe funnily with humor, and then also the side that's just poignant, uh, somber sadness that uh, we're, we're letting go of someone and that you could live life in that very way. You could have a being around you. And I think the show has a bit of that. I think I relate to that, you know. Um, losing my mom... Uh, changed my life in a lot of ways it ruined my life um, and who I thought I was but the great gift of me experiencing life from a joyful light humorous side almost in response to the great loss there's a balance yes a balance and also uh, maybe sometimes an unleashing if you faced what you thought was unfaceable you know, if you thought about it at all, it was like, oh, I can't imagine how I would live through that. Mm. And then you do. I, I think there's a way that, um, f- at least for me, fear has lost its hold on me. It's not the same thing it used to be. Mm. And, I, and I don't know if that, I, I feel there's a freeness in the way that you conduct yourself of course i didn't know you before <laughs> but, yes yeah uh, right. our first meeting face to face at the doorsteps of the show exactly um, and thanks for coming by the way i really was Absolutely. glad to have that occurrence um and like literally to share that with you before getting to talk with you now um yeah that's interesting i i love that you say that this fear i you know like that you don't relate to that part of you know of our experience of death and um, I like knowing that that's a possibility because I really do think that I'm a mixed bag around all of it and that part of what I am in a show um, is all of that. I mean, I, I people make fun of me um, now, you know, like sweetly and tenderly, but they make fun of my crying, you know, at these shows. And it's it happens every show. Mm. Um, and then in the same, like, as the tears are literally haven't like quite dripped from my face or I've not quite wiped them away. I'm into a joke and I'm, and we're, and I'm laughing and the audience is laughing heartily. And I've always in all of my years doing theater and, and improv and, you know, stage production presentation like that live performance. I've always been really fascinated by the openings of drama and comedy, you know, like what we get closer to by opening those doors one after another, after another, after another, you know, side by side. It just, the vulnerability that is available is quite powerful. And I think that, you know, theater has that potential. I think, you know, entertainment has that potential. And I think the show is a really poignant uh, manifestation of that potential too. Cause it really is, it leaves you that way. It leaves you cracked open having cried, having shed great like sorrow, and then just really more than anything at the very end, maybe you feel more alive than you did when you got there. Absolutely. And it also occurs to me, uh, you know, there's all this, uh, there are all these ideas that, you know, men and women grieve differently and this and that and the other thing. But what you're talking about is grief being an opening to all your feelings. 
uh, and and this affectionate uh, affectionate kidding that you're saying you get just for being a person who, when talking about death, cries. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, of course. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. No shock there. Yes. Um, and yet somehow there's more or less acceptance of that for for everybody. But I I imagine more for a young man. Mm. I don't know if you if you think that like if your if your wife was crying all the way through, would anyone comment on it? Mm, that's interesting. Um, I, I do think there's something uh, quite moving and jarring to see. I mean, you you saw me on stage. I mean, I'm a tall. I'm a big guy. Um, I have like pretty big features. I'm my energy is quite big on stage, and. Um, I think that is a unique part of the opening. I think what me being that is something that everyone can get into. And, and, and you know, I, I'm sure there are people that maybe just can't when, and they've been to the show and haven't. But mm-hmm. I think the power of the show, the way it has worked for people is partly because of that, because of my literally like my physical, you know, human, but, you know, man, masculine present that's just weeping like a teddy bear and then laughing like heartily too. Um, in in a in a moment. Well, there's uh, a you, you're creating a space that invites that. Yeah, and I think the, I think the um, the vul- Yeah, I think the vulnerability, like to be able to offer that up to the people that are sharing that night with me, is a journey. Like that, they like take my hand and say, "Okay, let's go." And I mean, I know I'm like, I'm really into David White. I, and I'm only just, I don't want to like be all over all of his stuff right now, but I'm, I'm really moved uh, by his expression of these ways of being in, in his, his newest book, Consolation. Um, he describes vulnerability as not a weakness or a passing indisposition, um, but something, you know, that is underlying and present. And it's a, it's a, part of our natural state and so like being that and being that kind of offering for everyone and having them follow me down that vulnerable path is opens us all up to so much possibility in an event and then maybe when it's all done to so much more life i think absolutely i mean one thing i think about and and we'll go to a break after this and come back and talk about it more is that if you can sit in a room and in a room inside yourself first of all with death all subjects are possible mm, yeah um so let's come back and talk about that more in a minute. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, etc., etc. Uh, to find Ned Buskirk, you can just search You're Going to Die or go to the website www.yg2d.com. Be back soon. your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness relationship issues anxious 
parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Ned Buskirk about the community he formed called You're Going to Die, which started out as a poetry and prose open mic in his, in his apartment and now has grown into an international community of people talking about and creating about the fact of death. Um, you know, I was thinking right before the break, uh, and I want to start here, with this little tagline that you have on some things I saw online, um, which is, what if, just like a, I think it's a gallon of milk, quart of milk, gallon of milk, um, you were tagged with your expiration date. Mm. I think that's so funny and poignant, just as we were talking about before the break, that yeah. idea that... Um, uh, and it's kind of like milk, you know, there's that date on there, but it doesn't always, <laughs> it yeah, right. it's not always for that or after that. Or <laughs> yeah, you were supposed to die yesterday, but we're just trying to get yeah, a little but, more out of you. And, um, that, that's that, right. That's super relevant to, I do a lot of work in cancer. And there are people that are in like a, a metastatic illness group which is supposed to be, you know, this is the group for people who know they're going to die soon, and they've been in there like 15 years. Yeah. Um, you know, you just don't know anymore, which I think is a really different um, experience as a community to um, even have diagnoses that are supposed to really take you out quick, and they don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the, the, the line is, would you live any differently if you were labeled like milk? Um, but that's, that's better than what I said. Thank you. for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like yours. I like a gallon of milk. Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think personally going through, I, my, my mom got cancer when I was 13. That was the first time. Mm. And so really 
the next 13 years was a lot of back and forth around you got you have cancer and you're going to die you know i mean there was in fact i think probably early on i wasn't told some of what was said but certainly towards the end of her life i was pretty involved and i had moved home to live with her for a year when she got quite sick um uh when i was around 25 and uh that knowing from a doctor you know having a doctor say you know, we're, we're talking about a few months and then me living there for a year and things getting so good that I moved, you know, I moved out and moved back to LA. Um, you know, that, that's a trippy space, you know, Mm. of the death conversation. Um, and certainly most, you know, it mostly affects you like this post that I did on Instagram, uh, or on social media, it's like, oh, it's curious to think about, but you know, from, from your loss, when you're living it, when you're really like, you're sitting on the edge of your seat to hear words from a doctor, you know, some kind of truth around it. I think the, the reflection I get out of that back into my life is this, this still unknown, even down to the last minute, you know, that even, even when, because even really when the doctor said, life support isn't probably worth doing and she died within the hour like the realness of the occurrence doesn't mean a thing afterwards like the timestamp means nothing that it finally occurred I, you know i couldn't i couldn't fathom it fathom it even though it had happened you know sure. and i think death has that unknowingness to it and i think all of death has this unknowingness to it and I think that's why my life and my work in this You're Going to Die movement is drawn because I think in the unknowing, like, is the letting go, is the potential to, to think, oh, there isn't an answer, there isn't an expiration date, there isn't, there isn't any way to find my footing. And that maybe off is some kind of version of, freedom if you could get to the other side of it or some kind of bigger life if you can get to the other side of that i i think so (laughs) i mean that's my experience Mm. most deeply uh maybe a little bit similar um my wife was given six months to a year to live and she lived eight and a half Mm. so what's going on in eight and a half years where the doctors are like well i don't know you're still alive Mm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's never off the table. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, we still got to come back and talk to you about Not that. Really you said sure. this eight okay. years ago. I guess our intuition has been pretty good about what to do. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it could be tomorrow. You know, there's some way that then that becomes the rule of living. Mm. Yeah, that's a hope conversation, too. You know, of course, this idea that you really you really don't give up even after someone's gone. You know, there's still hope carrying you through the loss into a conversation that's like, well, wait, where is she now? Mm. You know, like, where do I see my mom now? Mm. Where does she exist? Does she still exist? Like a continuing conversation, a question conversation. Um, And I think what you're sharing speaks to that, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very touching 
to me what you just said and and um, kind of coincides with this deep belief I have that relationship doesn't die. Mm. Yeah. That, I feel like, that, yeah, go ahead. That death is an event in the middle of a relationship mm. um, like birth is or like, you know, whatever, <laughs> any event. Mm. Um, but I, I don't relate too much to the concept of goneness. Mm. Death is real. <laughs> And it, yeah. and it took away some things, yeah, for sure. But when you're talking about your mom, I practically feel like I can see her. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> you know, nice. That's nice. It feels very vivid. Yeah, relationship I, to her. I think you know. Recently, I posted something on the "You're Going to Die" pages about her, and it was her birthday, and I think. I realized after this birthday passing, it was April 4th, um, that there's, wor- there's work to, to be that. You know, it's not, like, um, it's not like my mom being, and, you know, in a way, let me just be careful. This can get confusing. But when my mom's here and living, here's my mom. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's where she is. And when she dies... I think there's work required to to hold space for her and acknowledge her being in your life still. And I think that I'm getting better at that and, and not even like belief, like feeling it and like taking the moment to talk to her in a car or ask her forth when I'm feeling uh, lost um, and making space for her in my life, whether it's by ceremony or ritual, um, literally, uh, maybe it's just using the bottle opener that I, that I remember on our fridge growing up that I'd still have that. And I, when I open a bottle, it's like, ah, you know, like that, that's my mom, you know, and you're yes. here still. Um, but then I, but then let me just go back to say, I had a moment where I said, well, when someone's sitting in front of you, there's your mom. And really, I think what the, this conversation calls for or might ask is, wait, are you really actually treating that person as here now when they're right here? You know, to think that there were times when my mom was alive that maybe there's ways that I could have been in relation to her that would have made her feel even more alive to me. This this kind of experience mm. of what we have now that – you know, it really always depends on us. It always depends on us to let, let beings and life before and after death explode and exist and move through us and fill us up and make us grander and make us more vast. It's always up to us, you know? Mm, yes. That, that, that resonates as, as a parent, too, that mm. uh, having parented in a situation where I was so aware of death, um, brought a certain sense of presence. Mm, yeah. Um, I have two kids, uh, a two-year-old little girl and a five-year-old boy. And um, I wonder if I hadn't lost my mom and if I hadn't lost my mother-in-law. Um, well, first of all, I wonder if I'd be doing this at all. Um, you're going to die, I mean. 
Um, <laughs> Odds are against that. <laughs> maybe, as you think. Maybe. I mean, early as a, as a kid myself, I feel like I had a fixation on the conversation but had no outlet for it. I don't think space was held very well for me growing up to talk about it. I mean, li- literally, I feel like the first time my mom acknowledged this eventuality, no matter when, um, was that year that I'm I moved home with her and I remember sitting on the edge of her bed and her um, asking me if she was going to die. And before that, I don't think she ever articulated any fear, any information really like around this possibility. Um, so I, so maybe before I, I lost her and before I lost my mother-in-law, maybe somehow the conversation I was wanting to have would have, would have still brought this about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do wonder if without those losses, what it would be like to be a father, what would be different. Um, but the, but as a result of that, those losses, uh, there are regular moments that are, um, pregnant, with that missing and the presence that's brought in so tremendously in the wake of those losses to just sit and like just stare at my kid like I maybe would have never stared at them if I hadn't lost those people. Mm. And certainly not with the same thoughts in your mind. Uh, There's a... um, person I've interviewed a couple of times, Claire Bidwell-Smith. She's written a couple of books about losing her parents. And um, she. the second book is called After This, and it's about her persistent question, where are they? Mm. <laughs> you know, and um, the end of every chapter, there's a letter to her kids. So she really directly put those mm-hmm. two things together. That, like that. that there was some way that, um, and a lot of times it would be some way, you know, let's say the, the fish died. How did they handle that? How did they bury the fish and all that? Sometimes it was just thoughts on living, mm. you know, that, that were different for her because she lost her parents. But it impacts us. We can't know who we would be, but I know who I was before. Mm-hmm. Very anxious, fearful, um, uh, a little bit social phobic, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of things I am not anymore. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't see even much of a residue and, and it does have to do, that's the time when that really changed. Yeah. I, um, like hearing you say all of that. Um, I feel like this is a uh, ongoing, I think for everybody it is, but admittedly being, sort of at the center of this movement, the center of these live shows, um, like a real life force in those spaces. I feel like part of what I'm doing by doing the shows and this movement is trying to arrive at some of what it sounds like you've arrived at. Um, trying to get to more peace, um, less fear, Mm. Uh, more understanding, more fullness of life. Uh, I'm working it out. <laughs> I'm working it out. <laughs> well, and it's the it's the 
attempt that that really matters, right? Sure. <laughs> that we're that we're seeing things that way. Mm. Um I I was having this fantasy, you know, in this room when I came to your show of a couple hundred to three hundred people. Um Honestly, a lot of them looked like they were on dates, which I thought was great. Um, you yeah, know, they walked in holding hands. And, wow, <laughs> that'll that'll I mean, arrive at a makeout session, just, right? I mean, me and my wife were looking for you yes. know, <laughs> in 1990. Yes. But anyhow, um, I was thinking, okay, someone's in this room who who's reluctant, right? Who someone said, "I want to go to this thing. I want you to go with me." And they were like, you're kidding. And and they came yes. anyway. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I wonder if there's, uh, if you have any direct knowledge, because people have told you, or any subjective feeling about the impact on people who come um, reluctantly, who, you know, maybe haven't directly let themselves think about it. Mm-hmm. It's quite literally my favorite experience of the show the live show um, is the people that come up afterwards and just had no idea, you know, extra special is people which are kind of, there's few now after all these years, but people that know me, um, but you know, you meet people new all the time and they'll come to one of my shows. And I think it, it, you know, it, it's jarring and I love their face afterwards. I love them coming up and just saying, even if they just said, I heard about it and came, but especially if they say, uh, you, you know, I, I was like, you're going to die. Like, what, what could that possibly, like, be? Um, and then to arrive and just really, I'm, I want to be unabashed about saying so, that the live show just, I think it rocks you, you know? I think it's just, there's something magical and spiritual about it. Every time, every show, there's something that's been opened up that's singularly unique and necessary, and most people uh, are that affected, I think. Um, and, and then, of course, actually, I'm just curious to know who isn't. I would love to have a conversation with someone who had left early because it was too confronting or it just was like boring. Um, <laughs> I'd love to talk to someone that made it through the whole thing and were like, I'm never coming to this again and here's why. You don't hear that stuff. you know. And they're, like, and they're mad at whatever exactly. girlfriend or boyfriend dragged them along. <laughs> exactly. I definitely heard there's someone got up at a show a few months ago and she read something and said, I had a date with me. Uh, she left. Um, so, you know, I can see it happen. I know that it does and that's okay. And really there's a pulse there. That's part of it for me. It's actually more powerful to me to have someone feel resistant and kind of get defensive about what it is that's happening and what it is I'm doing. Cause I think that reflects the great need that there's something going on inside us that is sometimes really afraid to go there, but people reacting that way it, it lets me know you know yes this is right like you do need to do this and sometimes people can't you know go forth with you well, um yeah but there's a way Ned. i feel as if you can't really fail with something like that because um at the very least when something confronts their own lives those people have a memory of a of a room full of people who weren't afraid to talk about it mm. You know, maybe they yeah. weren't they weren't those people then. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. 
those people exist. When we get back, I really, we're about to take our second break, but uh, I've been doing a lot of work. Uh, well, I happen to be a musician and I've been, been doing workshops integrating uh, grief work with music. And so I've been thinking a lot about the power of the arts in particular, different from the power of a conversation even. Mm. And, I, and I really want to talk to you about that because that's part of the power of what you're doing. So when we get back, let's start there. Great. Time for our second break. So, listeners, you can go find both of us while we're on break at me at weatheringgrief.com and Ned Buskirk. Uh, you're going to die. You can just search that or yg2d.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Ned Buskirk, and we've been talking about the community that he um, created called You're Going to Die, and he does uh, arts events with that title and also has an online community with that title. And before the break, I mentioned that I really wanted to talk with you about the arts and grief. Um because it's really captured me lately. I've 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 always been a grief counselor ever since my wife was ill and died, and I've always been a musician ever since I was a little kid. But I'm just now at this advanced age, some people might say, finding a way to really put them together, and it's so powerful to me. Uh what happens for people when they get a chance to express um uh, themselves through the arts about the subjects you and I are talking about. So that's part of what captivated me about what you're doing. But I just wanted to hear, um, obviously you've been in the arts. You mentioned stage and performance and all that. Um, 
But was it a natural thing to want to invite expression about the subject of death through the arts? Yeah, if you remember in the beginning of the show, uh, the the original version, really, that was the main point, you know, to provide a creative space for people. And really, not just, I want to get the best musicians and best writers up. I was, I was like, whoever, like, the point is to get up and read whatever it is, play whatever you got. You know, you're going to die someday. Like, don't be so ridiculous and take yourself so seriously that you miss a chance to read a poem that someone might be moved by or read the label of your toilet paper packaging. You know, like, I didn't care. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the space I held. And I think that's certainly stuck. Um, It was only two or three years after that, or, you know, maybe not that long, but a couple years after the original open mic, when I needed to start organizing the event a little more, I had a fundraiser I was helping a friend uh, with, and he gave me one night of three, um, and on the night I had, I made the decision that I needed to name the event, and I realized that I needed to guarantee the quality of the event a little more too. The open mics that I've done are surprisingly high quality. Um, I don't know what it is. I think that it has to do with some kind of sacred space holding Mm. that when you hold sacred space, people share in a way that is, is just that occurrence is worth experiencing, even if they're not a great musician or writer. It's like the being that they are in that sacredness Um, but I thought for this fundraiser, I needed to invite specific writers and musicians that I knew because it was a fundraiser for, um, all intents and purposes. And that was the shift where I started doing a half open mic, half curated show. Um, and the open mic still part of it. I've just separated the curated show and the open mic into two evenings, usually every month. So one night you can come and just get it out. Whatever it is, you have to get out and people got a lot to get out. Um, as you know, and the curated event is the other version of that. And that's just higher quality artists that have been doing it for, and maybe not higher quality, but people that have been doing it for a long time and know what they're doing and do it well. And they do all of it well in this particular conversation. You know, they know how to hold such a tender, uh, important topic with their music, with their words, and they're better than anybody at bringing people to it. Um, and so the the like the show you went to, there was a lot of music, um, mm-hmm. as you recall, and yes. that was essential. I knew I needed to have that balance, and actually, I knew I needed to have words and the words of these patients that Claudio worked with, and that I also needed to have a space where we could just sit and not be talked at, where so, a musician would get up and just hold us with their instruments mm. and their lyrics, and that is has been. Uh, an essential part of the experience, I think, just what I just described, that sort of back and forth between words and music and then me getting up and emoting, uh, being funny, being emotional, uh, all of it, like it puts a night together that is always different, but often powerful. Well, one thing I was wondering, because I've been having this experience, that all makes a lot of sense to me. And of course, being, um, you know, working with music myself, I can never tell if it's just me. I mean, music will always open me up like nothing else, you know, just because that's my mm-hmm. that's my way to get there. Mm. I sang every day after my wife died for mm. a full solid year, 
you know, and I'm usually a little erratic, so that was notable. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, uh, the other thing I've noticed, though, is that, uh, you know, these workshops I've been doing are not are not workshops for for musicians in any way. You know, they're just people that have often ended up randomly in my workshop because none of the others had any room. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. a lot of non singers. Yeah. Um, so that's already you would think an impediment, but by the end of the couple of hours, it's not just that people are singing; it's that their hearts have opened. And so I wonder if there isn't a way that just the the idea of expressing artistically something that's a little hard uh, to express actually helps you do it. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I, it's just coming to my mind as a thought because I, I I agree. I relate to that. You know, personally, I I've done some music. I play the banjo a little bit, but like I'm not good enough. Uh, well, I'll say yet. Okay, I'm not dead yet. So, but I'm not good enough to get up and really, you know, rock the strings in front of an audience. But I've done some singing and and over many years, usually with like someone else that plays an instrument. But there was a there was a point last year where I, I felt this desire to let myself personally go in that direction more than usual and not rely on this like me and how I speak and how I entertain by, by speaking at these shows. Um, and I, there's this song rainbow connection that, I, that um, I'm sure many people know, I think Kermit the frog made it most famous, but uh, <laughs> the, the version that I really adore is Sarah McLaughlin's version. And, and I've sung it to my son since he was in my wife's belly. And one night I just decided that I needed to like sing the whole song to everybody at the show. And I mean, <laughs> you know, you just realize a couple things, like as many times as you sing something leading up to a live version of that, like in front of an audience, it's incredible how the, and this is the same with plays. Like the memory is like, listen, I know you've done a lot of work memorizing me, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to drop some words and you're not going to remember everything. And that's how it was. Uh, I got up and I was kind of shaky. It just felt like totally out of my element. Um, But I sang the whole song. And even during the part when I couldn't remember, I just stopped and I just, you know, I could feel the embarrassing half of me. But I also was grinning and I felt so intensely alive, Mm. you know, like more than ever and certainly more than usual, but maybe more than ever. And and then I, I got back to the lyrics and I got through the song and no one's ever going to hire me to perform in a band. Like, I'm not going to be a recording artist and make a lot of money. Again, I'll say yet. But what I've got going right now as far as singing goes on stage, it, it, I need some work. But what happened that night, it was really special for me. And I think the audience got that too. Uh, it was an offering. And it was an opening up and a letting go. And it didn't require me to be very skilled. It required me to be really honest and take a chance. And I think life, um, well, let me, let me stop and go back a word. I think death is asking that too mm. of us and our living that we need to take a chance, you know, and just uh, find the moments where we can. And that doesn't mean, 
you know, my goal now is that I become a famous recording artist and musician. No, it's, it's, it could be just as little as getting up and singing a song alone a cappella, you know, or it could be as simple as getting up and reading those toilet paper label, uh, you know, inf- information. It's just something that breaks us out and makes us feel more here. And I think the other thing I'm I'm hearing, or maybe I'm superimposing, is that following those deeper impulses—not an impulse like I want cake, but you know, a deeper impulse like you wanted to share that song—that mm. came up out of your being, right? I feel like we've <laughs> talked already, like for hours and hours, and you're just bringing up stuff that I've shared out of my intimate being. Um, <laughs> my my answer to that is yes. It's compulsion, you know, and I think I bring up this specific word with people in the show a lot. What are you compelled to do? I don't mean like it sounds cool to become a famous writer. I mean, what literally, as silly as it might be or as grand, can you not stop thinking about if you're really honest and listen? And that song and singing it live just came into me uh, weeks before the show and I couldn't quite let it go. And I was listening enough that I took a chance and did it. And I think, I think that's the word. I think compulsion is the answer to what, what you're speaking to there, uh, what that was for me. And it is what I ask, I think, of, of the people in my show, the performers that I've invited and the people that show up and just sign up uh, on an open mic night when really half the list, if not more, signs up halfway through the show. You know, like it takes them seeing other people before they can take that step but by the end of the night everybody's even if they didn't get up they're opening you know Um, yes yes i i i'm thinking of a person i have in one of my groups one of my cancer groups who who has a very tough diagnosis and she went and shared it something that's kind of like uh the moth in new york uh yeah (laughs) You know, a non-unrelated thing where people go and share their stories, and the only rule it has is it has to be true. Um, mm. <laughs> anyway, so she shared her whole story, and by the end, she said everybody's faces were covered, were wet. Yeah, was this mortified? Is that the, <laughs> that that show mortified where you have to share like a real embarrassing story about your youth or something? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like that. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know what the theme was, mm. but <laughs> but yes. That That's what happens. That when <laughs> yeah. you share out of the depths of your soul, mm. people are moved. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I just people are going to be moved, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, I do feel that the people I know who faced kind of crushing loss, profound loss, mm. have more of a tendency to decide action by what we're talking about by feeling compelled. Rather than thinking, mm. thinking about it, I, mm. I, who can prove it? I can't. But yeah, <laughs> that's neither. my subjective experience. Everyone I talked to on this show, for instance, would say, "I didn't know it was going to end up here." Mm. Uh, you know, I yeah. just, I just had to do this thing, and then it, and then it turned into that, and then it became this. You know, yeah. kind of yeah. like you and I are both talking about very, mm-hmm. very compelling um, phenomenon. Yeah, I love that. That's great. So, I am certainly hoping I'll be able to come to some of your other events, but do you have kind of in this last minute or so uh, any dreams you'd like to put out in the universe? What would be your dream for your going to die? 
That's a nice question. Um, you know, it's like, it's a half known thing and a half unknown. I mean, there's very real world versions of, of it, like doing a radio show, doing a podcast um, regularly so that more people through the social media uh, manifestations of the movement can access me and the artists that I, that I host on the show. Um, and of course, I'd love to do more shows like the show you got to see. I, I love, love, love doing that show in the space that I did it in bigger space that still could maintain intimacy, mm -hmm. um, and connectedness. Uh, I love the idea of greater artists, musicians, and, you know, not necessarily famous, but I also do like the idea of people that are out there doing really great work yes. and holding space for them to do their great thing just in this way, just for us, you know, and death and dying and mortality and grief. And uh, I see you're going to die offering that. May it be so. Thank <laughs> I'm you. sure we'll be in touch and people can get you at yg2d.com or on your Facebook page, you're going to die. Next week, I'll welcome Mark Libano. Mark's the author of Mountains of Light, which is a memoir about time he spent in Yosemite after his first wife's death. He's a frequent writer on the subject of loss, especially loss of a spouse. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.